Okay, hello, welcome everybody. Uh, my name's uh, David Clark. It's um, a huge pleasure to be back in my old college this evening to introduce Maria Delana Headley. Um, she's a hugely exciting writer, as I'm sure many of you have already discovered. Best thing, I think, to hit Anglo-Saxon medievalism since John Gardner's Grendel. Um, if you haven't yet got a copy of The Mere Wife, um, there are some available at the, uh, the bookstore. Monty will, will give you some for a bargain price of £10, so buy some for your family and friends. Christmas is coming up. True uh, story. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Maria's going to be reading from uh, The Mere Wife, obviously, and also, excitingly, for the first time from her forthcoming translation of Beowulf, so you'll be the first people uh, to hear bits of that translation in public. Uh, then Caroline Narrington, who's the medieval fellow here at St John's, will interview her, and there'll be a Q&A, uh, and uh, then the book signing. Marie is a, a startlingly original and intelligent writer. Her writing is by turns dramatic and reflective, funny and tragic, brutal and tender. I've just been reading her young adult novels, actually, Magonia and Eerie. They're fantastic, um, but of course, it's uh, The Mere Wife uh, is the reason we're here today. It's a novel that demonstrates a stunning command of multiple voices and perspectives, refusing easy binaries and stereotypes as it explores some of the most complex and troubling questions of our time. I think this novel could only have been written by someone deeply versed in Beowulf and the scholarly debates around it. But equally, it shows how this ancient poem can speak to a contemporary world of toxic masculinity and competitive motherhood, of cultural appropriation and PTSD, of gated communities and fear of the other, and of the monstrous hunger beneath our veneer of civilization. The mere wife calls us to listen, to listen long and well to others' voices. And I think it asks us to consider that if we take the long view, history may be enough to change the future, and that someone or something that we see as a monster may in fact be a miracle meant to change the world. So please join me uh, in giving a warm welcome to Maria Zavala Headley. That made me blush. That was such a beautiful introduction. Uh, I'm so happy to be here in a room full of people who are interested in the same things that I'm interested in, which basically is everything. But this is the depth of the Beowulf interest is in this book. I'm going to read you a little chunk of uh, three different POVs, I think. One is uh, the Grendel's mother character, who's a war veteran. This is set in contemporary America. Uh, the other is the point of view of the mountain and the natural world where she lives. And then the last one is the Hrothgar's wife character, who is who's named Willa in this book. Let's see. And I'm going to find it. Okay. <coughs> I go back to the cave and hold the back of Gren's skull for a moment. I stroke his forehead. I give him a walnut and he chews it slowly. I can feel the cold of the cave floor through my jeans and his sleeping bag. There's wet on the wall wicking upward. There's a sound out there clucking. Someone on the other side of the mountain has chickens. We got one last year, but I had to be quick because they have dogs too. There's a family in Herod Hall that has a parrot, and sometimes I hear it telling itself stories. Once Gren and I saw it fly over, its wings bright red and green talking to itself. Once upon a time, it screeched. My son was terrified but dazzled, so it turned out was I. 
I'd never seen a bird like that out here before, and I was worried it would tell the world about us, but it just flew over, looked at us with a black and glittering eye, and in a very soft voice said, once upon a time, again, before it shook off into the morning. Hello, I said to the bird, and then closed my mouth. Apparently parrots grieve for the dead as much as humans do, and they're often a sad speaking creature, capable of flying up into the trees to cry for you and all your neighbors for 20 years or more. I wish. I can smell Herod Hall's dinner cooking. I wish Gren didn't hear or smell as well as he does. He cocks his head and looks out into the dark, laughter carrying up from Herod, the sound of music louder than it was at singing, recorded, Ella Fitzgerald. I know this song. It hurts my ears, he says. Gren doesn't know the words yet for how music makes you feel. It makes me want to sing, he says. He looks at me, his eyes darting around, looking first at one side of my face, then the other. You can sing quietly, I say, in a whisper. He whispers, I'm singing. He's shaking with excitement. I try to distract him with a story. You can never go down the mountain, this story begins. A lot of my stories begin this way. Why not, he asks every time I tell it. Down the mountain, there's a town where everyone's a hungry monster. The monsters tear people limb from limb. Like tree limbs, he asks. Like I might tear bark. He nods to chew, he says. They tear the skin from your arm, I say, and eat it. What if I want to go down the mountain, he says. Want and need aren't the same thing, I say. What if you're sick? I'm not. You've been sick before, he says reproachfully, his fingertips on the scar on my face. That was hurt, I say. Sick is something different. I don't think they're monsters. I watch them when you're hunting, Gren whispers. He hesitates a moment then. There's a little boy. He plays outside. A little boy, I ask him. I know the one he means. There's a cold feeling in my stomach. You can't go down there, Gren. You know that. Tell me you hear me. He looks at me defiantly and howls in harmony. Shh, I tell him, holding his shoulders hard. He keeps howling, glaring at me, high-pitched louder and louder. Do you want the monsters to kill your mama? I don't want to say it, but I say it. He hesitates, and then the howling turns to whimpering. I stay still, checking, hoping. There are no sounds that say anyone's heard him. No sirens. No new lights flicking on where they face the slopes. I point out into the sky, a shooting star streaking across the dark. Gren's sniffling, but he looks. I reach out my arms to my son, and he huddles in them, making himself smaller, his hard skull, his eyelashes on my face. Over there, when you saw a star fall, you weren't sure if it was a star at all or something sent from your country to blow up their country. There were, I was told, monitors showing all the people in every place with names put to the dots. There were, I was told, when I was one of the dots, systems for making sure you killed only the monsters, not the good people. Who are the monsters? Who deserves killing? I wait for Gren to sleep. He's not a sleeper, and neither am I. But who can sleep in a time like this? We're listening to a little boy at a piano, the keys halting under his fingertips. Beneath the mountain in the cave, the song carries, and someone's listening there, too. The people of Herod Hall eat dinner, drink wine and more wine and more wine, until the entire place is sleepy. Snow falls, heavy and soft, insulating the roads and the rooftops, and a boy emerges from a crack in the mountainside, moving quickly. He runs down, snow kicking up around him clouds of cold. He glances back at the place he's come from, dodges out of sight of the cave entrance and down the slope.
The lights blink over him, and he, then he's at the back of a house full of windows, tapping on the glass. Another boy appears inside the house, smaller than the first, eyes sleepy, then wide. They look at each other, one inside, the other outside. They put their hands on the doors and stare. The glass fogs up, and at last the boy on the inside slides his door open. He puts a finger to his lips. The other boy nods and comes into the house, easing the door closed behind him. They are known to each other, not strangers. Silence here. The brightness of the snow, the shine of it under the moon. Nothing moves but tree branches weighted with ice. The boys are out again, the smaller one dressed for the cold. Both of them run up the hillside, out of sight of the house. The moon silhouettes two shadows as they play in the drifts, the boy from inside teaching the boy from outside how to make a snowball. The boy from outside teaching the boy from inside how to throw the snowball, hard and fast enough to hit the treetops. Their laughter carries up and away, and the birds consider the sound. We dampen the noise so the laughter is only murmurs, whispers, two boys at play. They fall on their backs and roll, they angel arms and legs flailing, and the snow melts around impressions of wings. After a while, the boys make their way down again, back through the sliding doors and into the house. The piano plays again, haltingly, four hands instead of two. Listening halfway to the late night news, Will is sitting in front of the TV in her robe and slippers, thinking about the scratches she's just found on the kitchen door. Long and thin and in the glass, the marks of something that scratched it. She tried to do it with her own fingernails and couldn't. The marks were on the inside. The housekeeper must have brought her dog. There'll be a discussion. She looks up at the holly on the mantel. Holy, holly, thole, thole equals suffering. That drifts up from somewhere, some college intro to lit Canterbury something. Scrooge is on the screen suddenly. She's always hated Tiny Tim. She changes the channel. Now it's a Christmas special with folk singers in Austin where it's not snowing. It seems disrespectful to Willa to sing winter songs in a place where the sun is shining. It was probably taped in daylight. The singer has an earnest face. She's playing the piano. Is she even alive? This Christmas special looks 1975. Chopsticks from the music room. Then a tumult of notes hammering on the keys. Stop it, Dilly, she says, her voice sharper than it, used, than it should be. He's an hour past being sent to bed, and he's supposed to be sleeping. She wants to be sleeping, too. The piano stops with the sound of complaint. She hears Dilly scuffling around, and she sighs. She'll go in in a moment and coax him back to where he belongs. There's a small yelp she assumes to be Dilly slamming down the piano lid on his own fingers, not the first time. <laughs> Roger is sitting at the table reading a medical journal. Willa eyes him from where she sits. He's rolled up his sleeves and his collar's undone. It's Christmas Eve. The packages are already wrapped and she takes her temperature every morning. There was a bad moment two years ago, but she managed to keep it secret. Willa wonders if she was like a rabbit who eats its young. What if her womb is a cave full of teeth? She turns off the television and walks towards Roger. Her son is standing suddenly in the door of the living room, staring at her. You're supposed to be in bed, she tells him. I'm not sleepy, he says. His pajamas look damp, his hair looks damp too, a nightmare, his lips are bluish. Why not, she asks, weary of it, wanting to hold him, but he's getting too big for that and she doesn't really want to anyway. She wants to want to. What she really feels like doing is drinking in the kitchen with Roger. There he is, just out of reach, his foot in his slipper, tapping on the tile. I want my friend, says Dylan, still standing there. She's forgotten him. I want Gren. What's that, Willa says, looking down at him, hearing grain. Why would anyone want gluten? Mm. My friend, Dylan repeats, he came to play, but he had to go home to his mommy. Roger comes into the room. He bends to look at Dill. He? Who's he? I showed him my room, Dill says, and shrugs. 
Willa looks at Roger. Roger lifts his eyebrows. Is this person imaginary, Roger says, and Willa shakes her head knowing the answer. No child thinks his best friends are imaginary. Who, Dill says, Gren's real. And who's Gren, Willa asks, kneeling to meet Dill's eyes. You don't know anyone named Gren. That's not even anyone's name. You know a Benji. Dylan writhes with irritation. I'll show you. He runs down the hall and reluctant Willa follows him. Roger gooses her from behind, but she's in control. She doesn't laugh. The pill she took in the kitchen is working. Dill's gone into the music room, and when she arrives there, he's sitting at the open piano, Roger behind her. Imaginary Roger whispers and almost laughs. What, Dilly, she says. Roger has no idea what it takes to do this job every day. He's in the city, nipping and tucking a gardener, tidying the edges of labial hedges, while Willa is busy making Dylan into a miniature man. She glances into the gold-framed mirror over the piano and sees a flaw on its surface. She steps forward to brush it away, but it's a scratch like the ones on the kitchen door, and then she looks down at the piano keys and gasps. What happened here, Roger says. I showed Gren our piano, Dale says, and sighs. He didn't know how to play it, and then he saw himself in the mirror. Willa puts her hand on the keys and runs her fingers over the scratches, deep and wide. They make a sound as she touches them, a sound wrong for the moment, sudden chords, and she flinches. Who's Gren, she asks again, in what she hopes is a casual tone. My friend, says Dell, and closes the piano lid again, abruptly, nearly catching her fingers in it. My friend who comes to play with me. Can he come again? Can you call his mommy? Can I have hot chocolate? What friend, she presses. My friend, says Dill again. He's gone from the room now, leaving Roger and Willa standing in front of the piano, looking at each other. I don't know, Willa says. Maybe he got a knife. How could our son possibly get a knife? Roger's looking at her with more blame than she could ever deserve. From the kitchen, she says cautiously. Roger gives her the look he gives her when she's failed in any small way. The pill overtakes her now, filling her with gloom. He is ruining its proper effect, which should be cloudless calm. You'll have to lock them up from now on. Our son, access to knives? No, Willa, that is a no. It wasn't. She looks up and into the mirror again. There's no one reflecting there, no one but herself and Roger. Something tumbles in the kitchen, and they both run in, but it's only Dylan scaling, scaling the cupboard, hunting marshmallows. She sways. My friend, my friend came to play. In the morning, she'll call her mother. Time for bed, Willa says. No exceptions. Let me see your teeth. Dilly bears them. Brush them again. Yes, the mothers, all of them Rogers, too. What if the housekeeper's bringing a dog? Maybe it's a pit bull. The pill is working. She's falling, but upright. The window, the dark outside, and the light inside, there should be curtains. For a moment, she sees something flashing out beyond the house. Roger has his hand on Willa's thigh, pushing up her white gown. Dylan's back in his bedroom, having drunk the hot chocolate she doesn't remember making. But there's the dirty pot on the stove. <laughs> Sometimes she tucks her son into bed, and she feels like she's tucking a wild animal beneath the covers. It's always been that way. Willa shuts the kitchen door and locks it, twisting the little metal clasp that brings the bar across. There are locks on all the interior doors here. She turns and looks at her husband. Well, I don't know what all that was, Roger, she says, her voice puppeted by the pill, using his name so she, he knows she knows it. Just still in inventing something, Roger says. He has a big imagination. The knives, though, will get locks for a cabinet and shut them inside it. That can't happen. Willa looks at the clock and changes, changes the subject. Merry Christmas, she says. She puts, pushes her hips up over the lip of the countertop. She's tall enough to hop without being awkward. She crosses and then uncrosses her legs. Long and pink like fronds, she thinks. Under the nightgown, which isn't for sleeping in, everything is cream-colored lace trimmed in red for the holidays. The lingerie saleswoman advised her on what men want. 
It was nice to be naked in that room, watched by the sales lady, appreciated. That suits you, the lady said, clapping her hands. That's perfect. Roger's mouth is on her hip bone, and she's arching and pushing herself up. The counters are clean. She sterilized them with a spray bottle. She looks out the windows as Roger pulls her nightgown off her shoulders, and she thinks, there, look at that if you're looking. But she doesn't see them, whoever they might be. All she sees are her breasts and their lacy half-cups falling out of the dress, hard and pale. And as Roger unties the tiny bows at the sides of her hips, the triangle of red-gold hair between her legs. The windows are like a mirror, light reflecting her own face and Roger's, the two of them in their white kitchen, glowing like they're a lighthouse, calling whatever ship, any ship. Lighthouses don't speak only to the ships of their own country, Willa thinks. And then, no, it's Christmas. Everything is bright. If anyone's watching from out there, let them watch. Thank you so much for that, Maria. And um, welcome to St. John's again. Uh, I'm particularly happy to be hosting you here because St. John's has not always been the most friendly place towards enthusiasts for Beowulf. Uh, one of our former, most distinguished former alumni was Kingsley Amis, who, according to his friend Philip Larkin, at any rate, um, Kingsley is said to have described Beowulf as, and it grieves me to, to cite this quotation, a crass, purblind, infantile, featureless heap of gangrened elephants. <laughs> Um, that is Kingsley for you and he did then go on to write a poem about Beowulf which is perhaps not quite so hard um, to listen to but he does describe the poem as Beowulf's tedious journey to his ancestors an instance of old English harking back so that's not about Kingsley but there's a lot of exorcism that St John's needs I think given this kind of cloud of anti-Beowulf <laughs> talk that we had in the past. Um, so Amos and Larkin had to study Beowulf in their first year and probably their second year as well if um, the, the syllabus was as I think it was back in the, the 40s when they were here. Um, but when did you first come across Beowulf and what first drew you to the poem? Well, I think from parsing it backwards, I think that I first encountered Grendel's mother in an in in image, in an illustration. Mm -hmm. Without Beowulf, no context. She, she didn't have the rest of the poem around her. She was just coming out of the lake with a sword. And I thought, there's a female monster. I want to know about that monster. Where, where did she come from? What is her story? And I was little. And then uh, encountered kind of in the ether Beowulf, which always is floating around waiting to grab people who are interested in story by the hair. Um, but I encountered Gardner's Grendel, really, as a reader before I encountered the actual text of Beowulf. Okay, what did you make of Gardner's Grendel? Well, I loved it. I was mm. a teenager when I found it first, and I thought, yes, yes, yes. And then I got to Grendel's mother again, and she's covered in fur, and she has no voice. She's, she's even made more, more monstrous by, by Gardner than she... Well, she's made more monsters by everyone than she is in the original, but she, in Gardner's Grendel, she's really, she's really awful. She's yeah, got she's nothing to do. She's slumped, isn't she? Yeah, she's... In the corner of the den, and she uh -huh. just doesn't give anything. She's a creature. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. She's, she's a bitey creature. She's a loyal mother, but she's, but she's got nothing intellectually to say to Grendel, who is brilliant and, you know, etc. Yeah. That's We've heard that story before from the difficult mother. 
Yes, <laughs> who made him a monster, yes, mm-hmm. I think that's familiar. Um, so when you actually, when did you first encounter the text itself? I think in high school, in, in the States it's taught in, in high school. Um, I remember reading little bits of it and feeling no particular way about it. I thought, I, I think at the time I was, I was a reader, as many of us are, of of all of the beat poets, and they're all male. And I, and I was accustomed, of course, to imbibing stories of men and stories of transgressive men. And so reading Beowulf was another story of a transgressive man. And I thought, okay, that's, that's just normal reading, but also assigned reading. And I was ultimately looking for something else. Um, but then as I got older, I started thinking about the ways in which Beowulf has has told us the story of our culture, the ways, the ways that we've learned from it over the years that it's existed, because it's been around. So people have continuously read it. And it's an unusual text in that regard. Yeah, so did you then study it at some point in college? Did you have to no. sit through lectures? And I did not. I, I never studied it. it was, I, have, I have the great, strange fortune of having never had a formal education in Beowulf and then suddenly writing an adaptation of Beowulf <laughs> and translating Beowulf. It, it's all been interest in the cultural phenomenon that is Beowulf. Okay, so that must be enormously liberating in the sense not to have to work your way through you know, Kleber's edition of Beowulf and having to note this emendation versus that emendation just to encounter it because it's as itself. I think it, it has been both liberating and also I have... A, a longing for an alternate version of myself that that could have done those things because it's so much of it. It's wonderful. The, the granular Beowulfiana is really pleasing to look at. It's interesting for me working on all of this, and this is how I ended up with this text that I have now, and also with the translation. Um, going through and thinking about the ways that people have worked with this text over the years has been really fascinating to me, and and fun for me as I've been playing with it myself. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I was never, I was never strapped to a desk and, and forced to. It was all, this is all, this is all interest in creatures and interested, interest in how we monsterize each other as humans. Right. So free choice then. Well, I don't want to give away too many spoilers about what happens in the book, though obviously most of the people in the room know how Beowulf ends. Um, but that may not entirely help, I guess. Um, but I just wanted to to foreground, and I, I suppose this sort of stems from what you were just saying about Grendel's mother as being the, the primary figure that captured your imagination in that first image. Um, the book seems to be really interested in motherhood, and the, the poem is intermittently interested. It looks kind of indirectly and, and sort of tragically at Weowfiaw, your mm-hmm. willa, mm-hmm. and what she wants for her children and what she's probably going to get for her children, mm-hmm. that... The audience know, but she doesn't know. What Hildeberg doubtless wanted for her son, but then she lays him on the funeral pyre. And, of course, Grendel's mother herself. So did you think, looking at at the stories it came to be, did you think that motherhood was going to be absolutely primary and also refracted across different characters? Because there's not a single mother here. Clearly, there are lots of them. Yeah, it's a book full of mothers. Mm. It's... um I mean, I am myself a mother. I'm a stepmother, so I raised two children um, from their, their early childhood and now they're in their, their late 20s. Um, so I, I had some intimate experience with the difficulties of being a mother and the fears that one has as a parent of small children, fearing that something will happen to them at any moment, that, that someone will, will 
snatch them or that they'll be run over by a car and let go of your hand, that, that anything could happen to them. And that, for me, was an easy step to the fears of, of Grendel's mother in this mm. book, which are that her son is going to be, is going to be murdered by any, kind, any number of people in the book. Um, and I think that's a pretty easy leap from the notion of what happens in the original poem with to Grendel, who is hypersensitive and hears and does not like the sounds that he is hearing coming from the hall. He hates the noise and hates the noise so much that it drives him berserk. But, uh, but the, all of the notions of motherhood, for me, the um, Frothgar's wife's negotiation with her husband when he adopts Beowulf suddenly. He says, well, you killed my monster, now, now, I'm, now you're my son. And she comes out into the hall and says, maybe you forgot about our sons. I, you Surely you would never forget about our sons. I know you wouldn't do that, husband. But just in case you did, remember we have these sons. And, and then she goes to negotiate with Beowulf on behalf of, to get him to not kill her sons, which I think is really poignant in the context of a story in which we are about to see Grendel's mother come in to get revenge for her murdered son. There are so, there are so many murdered sons in Beowulf, and to me that's an easy leap from murdered sons to what about their mothers? I, and I think that, that in much of the adaptation of Beowulf, that has not been a con- as much a consideration. The idea of a murdered son is more important to people than the, the grief and the the difficulties that a mother has gone through in order to raise that person who now is gone and is, has been, is like sacrilegiously gone, is horrifically gone. So I think about, yeah, I think about all those things. As, I'm, as I was writing this, I was thinking about all of the ways that you might lose your work. And when, it, when your child is the only proof of credit that you have done anything as a mother in this poem, um, that's, a lo- that's a loss, it's an enormous loss. And what about the other, the kind of chorus of mothers who mm-hmm. move through Herod, kind of, um, to me, very strikingly different from the, the normative voices in the poem itself, where you have the poet saying that that was a good king, or the Danes saying this, or the, the Yats are saying that. But these are all masculine voices saying, this is how things should be, this is, this is what's appropriate. And you have the women really policing the community of Herod. I, I was looking, when I, when I put those women in, there's a choral point of view that's the sort of women of suburbia, the mothers and the mothers-in-law, and there's a group of them, and they, they're policing everyone's actions within Herod Hall. And I had them in my mind, they're really the, um, they're the soldiers of suburbia there. I, I wrote them as, almost as, as Beowulf's soldiers coming in, but they're also the soldiers that are already there. They're the, the, hall, the hall men. And they are making sure the structure stays as it is, because if it doesn't, of course, what's going to happen, it's going to be Finsburg. It's going to be, blood wedding, everybody dies. So I think that the, the notion of keeping the structure the same is something that has always been a, a thing for us as humans. If you, if you flip the patriarchy, a lot of people die. So these women, the women in this chorus, don't want the patriarchy flipped. They don't want the power. They want to run it from behind the scenes. They don't want to be in charge. They want their husbands in charge. Mm, but there's that occasional suggestion, isn't there, where when the husband just is a little bit too troublesome, he might just... Something might happen to him. Or something might yes, happen. yes. Mm. In the book it's called, uh, it's a sort of regular incantation of whoopsie-daisy. <laughs> and then there's a dead husband at the bottom of the stairs, and oops, it was an accident error. But yes, the women have a lot of power. And, you know, I think women always... 
actually do have a lot of power, but often have been forced to turn their own strength back on themselves, and that's that's a you know common theme in the history of the world. And so that has kind of swallowed up part of one of my questions, which is about the various Greek choruses of voices that uh, make the, the the novel so fascinating. We've, we've seen the mothers of Herod Hall in, in the, the gated community there. But there's also an, a counter set of voices in the mirror itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know quite where to place those voices. And for a while I thought it was the voices of those sea monsters that mm-hmm. the Beowulf fights his way down um, among to get to the hall itself. Or um, the kind of creature that one of the yaks just casually shoots mm-hmm. because he can, because mm-hmm. it's sunning itself on a rock. Mm-hmm. I always think it's a terrible shame for that monster that was having a great day up until then, I think. Um, but uh, maybe those voices are a bit more complicated than just the, the voice of the wildlife. Could you say a bit more about that? I think it's all of the above. I intended yeah. it to be. I intended it to be an echoing collective point of view, so that, in part, so that. Dana, who is Grendel's mother, and Gren, who are alone living in this cave on the mountain, are not wholly alone. She also has a a sort of imaginary friend that travels Mm. with her that's a Mm. saint. Um, But I was interested in, in the case of those voices, I was interested in the history of the landscape and in the way, and it's in the original poem as well, the idea that the mirror is this very old, very weird, very creepy place that is described with language that is different from anything else in the poem. It's fascinating. That landscape description feels very much like that place is a character, that that place is a ghostly presence in the, in the poem. So I was interested in writing a ghostly presence with a voice in this case. The mountain has POV. The mountain is talking. The creatures within it are talking. They're all talking with one voice. And they are sometimes intervening, um, as I think the natural world does. I mean, the, mm. the long history of our relationship with the landscape is... You know, every once in a while there's a landslide, and this is part of part of the nature of this story as well. Is the, is that the the water has feelings, the mm. and is inhabited with um, not just living creatures, but with the memory of the place. Yeah, memory is really important there, isn't it? The sense that these not these are much more ancient voices than even the voices of the humans in the story, that mm-hmm. and that the human timeline is very short compared to the one that the land has is on. Yes. Yeah. That this is just a moment in that timeline. Yes, for all the horror and the tragedy, mm-hmm. and, you know, this too will pass in a way, it says in Dale. Um, and so that, that brings me on to the question of setting, because uh, when I picked up the book and I thought, okay, um, oh, it's an, a, a suburban gated community somewhere in America within striking commuting distance of the, the city. This is not kind of what I thought this would be like. Somehow. <laughs> I would have put the hair up. And then there's a, a, the mountain, there's a lake with hot springs, and there's uh, ancestral lands also mm-hmm. there. Um, so it's the edge lands which have been swallowed up mm-hmm. by the ambition of, of Roger, mm-hmm. uh, or Roger's father. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the, the, um, the Shildings taking what is kind of on the edge of their property and appropriating it in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how you came up with that particular setting rather than just going right out somewhere in the wild and in the woods and saying, here's a strange place, and here are some people in a cabin. Mm-hmm. I was interested in the idea, because of the, because of the poem, I was interested in the idea of the glorious structure that is 
is also um, meant to house so many people that it is, mm. but and the idea that the glory of it is also kind of how do I say like general like it, it feels like when people come to Herod Hall there is there's a sense of it's the most beautiful but it's built in like two lines like you know you, you Rothger gets the idea to do it and then then five lines later the, the hall is up and it's the most amazing building and he constantly has to say how amazing it is which is how I feel often gated communities or those like those you know cookie cutter castles are this idea that this is it's felt like a real estate brochure even in the original poem it feels that way to me so I was interested in writing a place that that felt like it came directly from the catalog copy and here it is now you have a castle now and the the idea of American society is so much that the idea that you can now have your castle you can be isolated from the horrifying masses that are probably going to come steal your shit like they want Mm -hmm. there are monsters outside they want to get to you so part of the idea of American architecture is to like build it up, make a wall, make a wall, make a wall, and of course of the American border at, in this present moment. So yeah, so I wanted it to be a place where people, certain kind of people could get in, but not everybody could get in, and it was, it's closed off to people who are from outside the community. So, so if it had been a, wild, a wilderness community, a log cabin, for example, or anything of that kind, I feel like that's a more, that's a more transgressive idea than mm. the idea of the utopian planned community that has locks. And you wouldn't have the same sense of power yeah. in hearing, I guess, in the and status. just out in the woods, but yeah. everybody defers to Roger and his family, aren't they? Yeah, the they ones have, who named it, they're mm-hmm. the ones who made it. They ha- they're the king and queen, and, they have, and it's the dream. The dream is mm. to come and have a house like this, to have a beautiful house that is white plaster and that has all windows. You have the luxury of like the view of the mountain, which has already been inhabited, and they've built on top of the city that was there. I think we've got a very strong sense of the, the uncanniness of that landscape, that you want to be able to see it outside and admire this picture book view, but the sense that was very strong when you were reading of what could be out there looking back in at you, mm-hmm. and the, that vestigial presence of the, the wild once it's come in the house and left those claw marks, I think it's one of the, the most uncanny bits of the of the novel for me. Um, and what about the mountain and the, the lake itself then, and the railway too? Where, where did the idea of the railway come from? That was really intriguing. You know, one morning I woke up and I was in the middle of working on this novel. I had been working on it for years. I had been thinking about it for years. And suddenly I, I knew that I wanted it to be a commuter community within reach of a large city, and so probably New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means train. And uh, then, and I knew the train was in it, and I had that feeling, but I didn't know what the train was. And to affiliate the train and the dragon with each other seemed to me suddenly out of nowhere an obvious idea, which then required a lot of back reverse engineering so that I could make that a place where where the dragon could be the train, could be a commuter train. Yeah, because Willard's watch has a dragon mm-hmm. hand on it, hasn't it? And the dragon moves around; it's a kind of marker of time. But the when I, I was because I think the, the dragon is sometimes the most difficult part of retellings of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. You can have the drama of the monster, the monster mother, the fight, and then there has to be the dragon somehow. Where did that come from? Where, where the hell did that dragon come and from? And the fact, yeah. I, when I saw it was the train, I kind of whooped and I said, yes, there it is, underground, with this, this horde of, 
of the old forgotten station with mm-hmm. its grand chandeliers and its mosaics and the, the splendor, the forgotten splendor of mm-hmm. the last survivor's hoard, if mm-hmm. you like. Mm-hmm. And then the um, acquisition of a new hoard in the sort of museum when the, the line is being reopened. I thought that was uh, a really astonishing an unexpected move in some way because otherwise dragons can be disappointing I think they can be because yeah. they're they need to be so wonderful and in in the difficulty in Beowulf in, in translation I think the difficulty is often that the dragon feels unaffiliated to the rest of the story the dragon feels like suddenly out of nowhere a dragon is pissed off his shit has been stolen and he wants to come for somebody anybody doesn't matter who whereas if you entwine the ethics of Beowulf throughout the story with a certain kind of fated disaster that is coming for him because of theft, because of mm-hmm. because of stealing life, because, because of, of the cup. Because of the cup. Yeah. yeah. And you have to you have to entwine mm-hmm. it as eventually this is what's going to happen to you too. It's coming. Um, so I think that the dragon the dragon can easily make sense in that context. But if the translation is Grendel's mother as a ferocious monster who's who's unhinged and is deserving of death, I think it changes the dynamic of, of Beowulf and the dragon ultimately. It changes his action. It seems justified that he would go and kill her, when in fact it's a pretty mercenary act that he goes to kill her. Yeah, yeah, I think that's certainly right in the, in the... It's mercenary, but it's also the act of somebody who, unlike the, the Beowulf in the poem, who is the kind of epitome of heroism, that the Beowulf of the book is as deeply damaged, as monstrous a person as Dana, as, as Grendel's mother. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that there's a kind of dialogue about war trauma going on in, in the book and, and the fate of veterans, not only these two crucial characters, but other veterans who appear on the kind of edges of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed to me to be, I don't know, do you think it's particularly a North American theme? Um, yeah, in some ways, because I'm really talking about the way that American masculine status is acquired, the, mm. the, what you need to do, although it's also throughout the history of, of literature, the notion that you need to do violence in order to be a man, in order to be seen that way. And then to have Dana, who's a woman and she's a female soldier, um, for her, like to be a woman, you don't need to do violence. Like That's not part of the qualifier to be a good woman, to be a strong woman, to be any sort of woman. You don't actually have to kill someone and you don't have to fight a monster. That's not part of the lineage of storytelling. So for me, writing about, about, about war in this book was partially that I wanted to write about the poisonous qualifications that we put ourselves through in regard to gender and proof of, of heroics, proof of proof of my deeds were worthy, my deeds were actually worth doing rather than potentially wrongful deeds, which are some of the deeds that were done by Ben Wolf, the mm. Beowulf character mm. in this book. He did some wrong things, but he recategorizes himself as a hero throughout the book. Yeah, and I think there are institutions in place like having been in the army, having been in the police, um, having that kind of role which allows him to do that. But Dana also went and fought and killed mm-hmm. in in war. Is her case different? I think that she is as much a victim of the society as she is a participant in it. She's she's a soldier, but she's also, and I don't think being a soldier is inherently doing war crimes, obviously. Mm. Um, but I, and nor do I think Dana commits war crimes. I think Ben does. I think that Dana is um, is someone who's serving, 
She thinks it will be okay. It's not okay. What happens to her isn't okay, but she's not prepared for it. And ends up with, with a, an extreme story that she did not intend, and in fact carrying a story inside of her body that she did not, didn't intend. So, I don't know. I think they're different characters, but I think they could, they, they both do good and bad things. He, he does mostly bad things. <laughs> they, I'm not pro Beowulf, like my, my soul just doesn't live there. But, um, but I think Dana does, she does both in the course of this story. She keeps her son very isolated, and what ultimately happens is a result of the isolation as much as it is the world. Yeah, I think that's, that's true, isn't it? That they're both coming from, in some ways, kind of similar backgrounds, aren't they? That she joins up because her mother's died, she's 17, she doesn't know what to do with herself, and the, the community has been kind of destroyed, and he's an orphan, mm-hmm. he's a swimming champion, of course, mm-hmm. um, and there have been some slightly odd episodes in his life already, I guess, but he looks like he was always meant to join up and go and kill people. That was his destiny, mm-hmm. where she kind of falls into it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me in the original, in the poem, is the idea of familial bonds between warriors and the idea that if that even more than your family, that you might even potentially forget about your family. You might forget you have sons because you've just met a warrior that you quite like and you want to be mm-hmm. brothers with him. You want him to be your child. You want him to be your heir. And your bond now as, as fellow fighters or as not even fighting in the same battle together, but as knowing that you have fought, is stronger than the bond that you have with your wife, with your... Mm. So, so the, the like brotherhood of the hall, I think, is a really... It's is an interesting thing to think about, and it was interesting for me to think about it as I was the brotherhood of... Not just brotherhood, but sisterhood of suburbia. Mm. And the idea that the emotional bond is stronger than a romantic bond, that, it's, that it is a blood bond. Um, the bond of defending your home territory, your very isolated home territory from, from wickedness, you know, yes. whatever way. And the, then the need to name it wicked, the need to look out from your high window and say, wickedness, it's below, we're all united here, which is, I think, the source of many bad deeds throughout the history of humans. So mm. the idea that you can only have a sisterhood or only have a brotherhood if you have an opponent. Yes, yes, that's what you identify yourself against. Um, we've already talked a bit about um, John Gardner's Grendel and the, uh, I think, extraordinary effect that it has when it makes you um, look at the poem again and think, yes, you can take that story and revision it in, in an interesting way, even if the poor old hag just stays in the, the corner of the den there. But are there other versions of Beowulf that you've particularly enjoyed and um, a few years ago, now I think maybe when David was still here, I had a Beowulf film day and I showed all the versions of Beowulf I could get my hands on, including the amazing animated Grendel, 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 which has uh, a, a Grendel is a kind of pink dinosaur like monster with yellow spots, voiced by Peter Ustinov. <laughs> and he looks really cuddly, but he still <laughs> marches into hair up and just. Amazing. <laughs> and eats his way through the assembled warriors, saying, oh, yeah, not, not so nice after all. <laughs> there are um, a bunch of other Beowulf uh, movies. Uh, have any particularly caught your eye or have you found interesting? And the Zemeckis one, of course, is a kind of case in point that well, we talked about earlier. As this, as this book was beginning to gestate in me, I, the Zemeckis movie came out, and it was... I didn't yet know that... 
Basically, I got so aggravated by the Zemeckis movie and by also Revolutionary Road, which is an American suburban novel about misery in the suburbs. The two things aggravated me in different directions, but ultimately resulted in this book. And it was, um, it was because I wanted the Zemeckis movie to be awesome. I wanted the awesomeness that was not in it, and then there was Grendel's mother again, painted gold and naked, and a seductress. yeah, with those... Um integral high heels that just grew out of that her just grew out of her feet like a strange golden Barbie and <laughs> but I think that that even more and maybe this is just human but the things that have have really I've been as inspired by the things that I hated as I have been by the things that I've loved in this regard and the things that I that I wanted to be glorious that were not as glorious as I wanted them to be caused me to do a lot of thinking about the nature of feminine monstrosity. The, the Angelina Jolie version in that movie, the Grendel's mother played by Angelina Jolie, is, is a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. And she's a seductress, and, she, and all kinds of sex happens with Grendel's mother in that book with seemingly everyone. She's just banging it out. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was just like, how? How did this happen? But also thinking about the sort of spectrum of monstrosity that has been available for female characters, it really led me to a lot of thought on that topic, which has led to my career, which I think has, was, it was good that I watched that movie that I didn't like um, in, terms of, in terms of thinking about the voices that I ultimately, in, in my work, have been wanting to really amplify and to, to reveal voices that, characters that didn't have voices in these stories. Um, you know, Grendel's mother has no, she doesn't say anything. And, and that's, uh, that's, of course, very strange to me that she doesn't say anything. That she, it doesn't make me think that she doesn't have anything to say. But I think in the, in, in the original version of many of these stories, I just thought, well, in my early career anyway, I, I, it didn't occur to me that I could just make these women talk, that I could shine the light on them and just have it be all about them. Like, to take on Beowulf seemed very daunting to me when I first had the thought. I thought, I don't know enough about Beowulf to take this on. People have written about this for hundreds of years. It's really, it's, it's, it's the big thing to take on. And then um, watching, watching things like high heel integrated feet on Grendel's <laughs> mother started me thinking, well, who, who, why not? Why, why not take this on? Why not go in? Because it seems that maybe there's been... Lots of women have been neglected from the like larger power plays in the, in the study of Beowulf. Like they've not gotten the light sho- shining on their work. And there are so many women who have worked on Beowulf over the years that whose work has not been seen in popular culture. So that aggravates me. <laughs> and I want I want more of that work to show. I want I want a more diverse um, spotlight on scholarship in the, in the in this field. Fantastic. So talking around Beowulf as well as recasting it, we can see different kinds of people now beginning to engage with it and to, to ask the, the questions which it provokes, I think, in this particular period, differently from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, I've asked you, I think, quite enough questions now about what you think of the poem, what you think of the book, but it would be great if you would read us some of the translation. Okay. Um, work in progress, so it's the first time you ever get to hear this. So in book. progress. I, it's like completely... Yeah, it's a newborn baby right now. But... I will read you a little tiny piece of the beginning, and I will go to Grendel. 
um, coming into the hall uh, right before the battle, which I hear is being read by some people in this room, so that's the section you're on, so I'm going to read some of it. Okay. Bro, tell me we still know how to talk about kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were, brave, bold, and glory-bound. Only stories now, but all sound the Spearday's song hoarded for hungry times. Our first father was a foundling, shield-sheafing. He spent his youth fists up, browbeating every barstool brother and bonfiring his enemies. The man began in the waves, a baby in a basket, but he bootstrapped his way into a kingdom, trading loneliness for luxury. Everyone from end to end of the whale road knelt to him, whether they thought knees necessary or no. They brought tribute and bowed down. There's a king and there's a crown. That was a good king. God sent Shield a son, a wolf cub, further proof of manhood. Being God, he knew how the spear dance had suffered, the misery they'd mangled through leaderless long years of loss. Shield followed, fathered a fierce fame. Bao's name kissed legions of lips by the time he was half grown, but his own father was still breathing. And we all know a boy can't take his daddy's throne until his daddy's dead. Privilege is the way men prime power the world over. A smart son gives gifts to his father's friends. When he takes those troops, he'll lead them to follow the leader. Shield was iron till the end, and when he died, his warriors attended to his last orders. They swaddled their king of rings and bore him into the bosom of an ice maiden. A ship anchored and eager to embark. They packed him tight in treasure, bright swords, war weeds. His shroud shone, sun-stitched. I've never heard of any ship so heavy, nor corpse so rich. Shield came into the world unfavored. His men waited him as well as those strangers had who'd first warped him to the wave's weft. Even ghosts need, need to be fitted to fight. The warband flew a golden flag over their main man, and the salt sea saluted him, and so did the storms. And Shield's soldiers got drunk instead of crying. They mourned the way men do. No man knows, not me, not you, who hauled his horde to shore, but the poor are plentiful, and somebody got lucky. And onward to the Grendel bits. I have found in here somewhere. What page? Ah, here we go. Okay. So this is like Beowulf has arrived and everybody's partying and everybody's drunk and going to bed. Then Beowulf lay with his head on a pillow and beside him rested his men, warriors of sea and sleep. They were ready for life's end and didn't expect to see their parents again nor their wives. They knew the story of the slaughterer and of how many years the Danes had been driven from their home hall. But the Almighty had other plans, a tapestry of terror threaded with triumph. The weather, weather gates the winners. They'd rise with their one leader, crush their challengers, and cruise on through creation in calm and pleasure. You know how it goes. God is the final decider, and men only the question askers, students seeking solace. In the dead of night, he emerged, a walker without need of light, racing along the edge of the hall shadows. Nearly all the guards were sleep-sagging, chins to chests. They'd given themselves over to God and knew that if the Almighty chose it, they'd be goners. But if not, no enemy could drag them to his hall. One of them waited as the hour got later, ready for blood. He alone lay awake, eyes open on the alert. Hidden by fog, Grendel roved the moors, God cursed, grudge worsening. He knew who he hunted, the men in the tall hall, wine-drunk, mead-met men. He pined for his prey to extinguish them. Under storm clouds, he walked in his usual anguish, feeling their hearth and heat, the gilded hall atop the hill, gleaming still through years of bloodshed. This was not the first time he'd hunted here, but never before or after had such hard luck held. 
No one worthy had ever lain in wait for him. The warrior walked toward the hall, his head and heart hurting, and arrived at the Iron Cross door. Its hinges howled a welcome for him, and, its, and his rage ratcheted up. He flung the door wide and leapt into the hall over decorated floors and into the hold, his fury frothing. His gaze flamed as he counted them, man by man nested together, roosting like roasting chickens. He'd be the sort of fox that stalks the night. Before sunrise, he'd prize souls from flesh and eat his fill, no coup remaining, no bill, but only feathers, loose on the floor. His destiny, though, was no longer writ in others' blood, footprints to the door and out, the moors, the mirror. No, tonight was the night Grendel's goose would be cooked, his funeral banquet bruised and blue. From his bench, Higelac's kinsman watched over the long haunted hall, waiting for his hunted hunter to pounce. At last his enemy struck, leaping to snatch a sleeper and suck him bone dry, staining the planks red, grunting, gobbling, draining. Here a throat, a head, fingers, feet, dead. Grendel dropped his first course and approached the bed where Beowulf slept, hands outstretched to slaughter a second, but he gripped and found himself conscripted, his hand grabbed by a commanding geat. The grasp raised Grendel's gore, rendering him a revenant in a hall he'd always reveled in. His bones cracked, but he could not wrest himself free of this clasp, war-wedded to a woe-bringer, who clung like no human had ever clung, keeping him close though he tried to flee to divest himself of halls and return to his home. Dive into the dark and abide with any awful thing there. Stay in stealthy health the rest of his days. He was an unwilling draftee and had never been bested like this before, nor held hostage. Now Hegelak's men, chanting the boasts he'd made, his bed rhyme, climbed out of the covers to get a better grip. Knuckles buckled and joints unjoined. The attacker became the attacked, racked with pain, attempting to escape, to run and race from hall to fens, those hidden highways. His own grasp unlatched and flesh locks loosened. The hurt holder was full of horror, here at his hell. Walls shook, benches splintered, and Danes dreamt of doom or quivered, questioning. The warriors wrestled, their bodies lurching through the hall, smashing and crashing, but the hall stayed whole. Its design fit for fighting, the wooden walls crossed with iron bands of forest fettered together. Though from what I've heard, the mead benches stood on end and shattered. Gold monograms no match for battle, and the two fighters fought on in the rubble. I mean, damn, man. Until this night, no shielding elder would have believed the hall vulnerable to anything but flame, its ivory and iron, its careful cantilevers, but now it risked timbering by titans. A wailing clamor rose again, rocking the room, and the North Danes listened to the sound of doom knocking. The whole hall heard the hall, the whole hill heard the hall resonate with the shriek of that almighty abrogate, the loner's lament handcuffed by hopelessness. The warrior holding him was stronger than any monster more muscular than any man. The stalwartest of soldiers had no wish to imprison the invader, but only to slay him. Grendel's life wasn't worth living, and Beowulf had decided it. His own men set up a guard as the two enemies fought, swinging their heirloom blades willy-nilly, though really their captain needed no keeping. They swung for the slayer's soul, but their struggle was for naught. They could have stayed sleeping because their swords, sharp as they were, couldn't injure the fiend. His spells had warded him, annealing his skin. Still, his death would be agony, and it wouldn't be swift. No existence snuffing instant, but slow suffering. His sinning spirit sent to sink slowly down to hell. He knew it now. He had spent seasons haunting this hall, preying on poets, bringing pain to the privileged. His body was breached, and its bones were breaking. Nicolette's kinsmen had him hand-welded. Each of them living canceled out the other, as Cain had Abel brother unbrothered. Someone had to give, and it was this one, the unforgiven. Grendel's shoulders split, muscles twisting, and arteries unscrolled. 
his limb worried from wholeness into wound, and at last his arm was bested by a fatal fist. Beowulf the winner, Grendel dismissed. He was gone to his grave, still living, running to the water, his wound weeping, his lair, his last longing. His hourglass was emptying now, his days done, and he knew it. Each heartbeat wrote its number in red, and the ring Danes were delivered of their wretch with a ring, their enemy dead. Thank you. All of my work has been really, each book is really different from the next one. But what always happens is that I get this little kernel of something. In this case, it was, it was the idea that the, um, the word for, that is usually translated as hero for Beowulf and Kleber and as monster or hag for Grendel's mother and monster for Grendel is the same word. So I had that notion and I thought, what? No, why? Can't. And that caused me to do a, a sort of wild, free-ranging deep dive across everything I could read about that topic and everything I could read about um, classification of Grendel's mother. So yeah, so that's like that's kind of typical. Like I start with the with a question and then and then do as much research down any little path that I can find. And then just start making shit up in hopes that it um, will work, and then trying to find research that can support the possibility that I have imagined something might be. So this is why I write fiction, by the way. Though this is why I, this is why I am not an academic because the burden of proof is is like it's there. Like the idea that I would need to like find in writing many of the things that I want to find that aren't in writing. That's it means that I have to write fiction because I want to write the possibility that, that has not been in, in the canonical texts. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Thanks for that. Um, I'm about, I have to admit I'm about halfway through the book, so I may, I may be missing some things here. But I wondered um, what the, what the, when you saw the genre of what you were doing, um, in novel. And if you saw that as like a different what you're doing translation work. Um, I'm going to stand up. It's going to make everyone happier. Um, Genre-wise, I don't know. I've written in kind of every genre my whole career, and I it's a mashup of always a mashup of things. So like, there's definitely some horror in Mirwife. There's some. Um, it's kind of a little bit of a thriller structure because you're you're hopefully it's a page turner, um, but it's also a lot of it is written in poetry. Um, I don't know. I frustrated every publisher deeply that I've ever had. They're all like, "Where do we shelve your books? We don't know." And so I was like, "Well, just wait. I'll eventually I'll write enough books that you can just have a shelf." <laughs> the heavy shelf. That's that's the goal. But at the moment, um, this in the states has been 
shelved in like literary fiction, which is you know a genre unto itself in my opinion. It's certainly not a naturalistic book. There's lots of lots of surreal and poetic supernatural stuff happening throughout it. But uh, but yeah, I'm also interested in in writing in all kinds of genre tropes. I'm interested in the ways that that we create hunger. And this is a book a lot about the creation of hunger. So I'm interested in the ways that we create a hunger for a story and then create a story that continues to be told. And a lot of those things are genre tropes. They're, they're like, you know, oh my god, there's a monster. And in, in Beowulf, in the poem, you know, he keeps, like, the poet keeps going back and saying, last night on Beowulf, this happened. And you get a little recap, a little quick, like, emergency recap of, of the reasons that people are pissed at each other. So... So it's, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I see myself as, as a genre writer in the long tradition of genre writers that started with, you know, the Odyssey. Because <laughs> all those things are, are monsters and heroes and gods and what if. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I like to write in that, in that realm. So it's still a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I want it to be epic. I try. I try. I want to, I like to tell the, the, biggest story I can think of and see if I can make it happen. And in this case, it's the biggest story I can think of with also a lot of it taking place in like a suburban kitchen, but it's still like, rah! So, yeah, I'm interested in that sort of thing. Bye. You're welcome. Yeah, we've, we've just come off the midterm elections in America, and one of the things that everybody was talking about was the fact that 59% of white women in Texas voted for the Republican Ted Cruz. And you had a little rant on Twitter about this and its connection to characters in The Midwife. I wondered if you wanted to expand a little on that. Yeah, it's a thing that I, that I rant about because it's... Because I'm a white woman. I'm like, what are you fucking doing that you're voting for, and in the 2016 election, voting for Trump, who, who made it really clear that he has no respect for women and doesn't thinks that they are, are objects. Um, Cruz is very similar. I, I started thinking about it in the context of, of Beowulf and in the context of this sort of storytelling um, in regard to women's safety in the world and the idea that if you are a person who sort of transforms yourself not into a, a woman with, who has equality with men, but into an object, into a beautiful object, into something that can be hoarded, that you actually have greater safety as a part of someone's hoard than you have as his wife or as, his, uh, as a woman who is his colleague, in the case of many stories across America in the last year and across the world, and in just across the whole history of the world, let's be honest. So thinking about... Um, why a woman, in this case, might vote for Ted Cruz. I was thinking about the ways that those women who would vote for someone like that would think, my safety is assured if I side with the man that I've already been siding with. He will know that he is meant to defend me. He will, if I tell him that I am his possession, he will, of course, take care of me. I will, I will not be attacked. I'll be safe. And I think that that's a big part of the political mess in the U.S. and in the world in general. But the, the idea that that one must keep the power where it has been or risk, you know, revolution is scary and dangerous and lots of loss of life happens in revolution as well. And I think this is why a lot of women who I think would otherwise, I would have imagined would have raised their fists and charged instead said, no, 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 but he's a poor little man. Don't attack him. He's, he's so, he's so good. No, no, no. 
don't come for him. And that's what has happened in the States. It's been, it's been people saying, don't be mean to the man. And I'm like, well, he's the president. Like, he's, he's put himself up there saying, I am, I am the one in charge. It is only reasonable to say the work you're doing is wrong, if you think it's wrong. But instead, it's like, no one, don't attack him. He's so delicate. And, you know, I mean, that's all just part of this screwy structure of, of keeping the power in its place and the way that that has been taught to women to help keep the power in place. Because women, women have to help it if it's going to happen. It can't just be men saying, submit. It doesn't work like that. It also works with women telling other women to submit and women saying, well, you must submit or we all die. The whole system will be broken and we'll all die. And, you know... I don't believe that's true, but I believe that's some powerful, powerful mythology. Hmm. I've always been quite struck by the loud noise coming mm-hmm. from Herod and it, how disruptive it is mm-hmm. and its uh, symbolic significance. So I was wondering why Ella Fitzgerald? Oh, well, in this case, it's because there are white people in Herod who are like appropriating black culture. And in, and in my mind, I was thinking... What would you do to try to be like, I'm so cool with people of color while you play like someone that you've appropriated and made part of your like white noise music, literal white noise, but except that it's a black singer whose career has been appropriated as an acceptable black singer. Yeah. Specific yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? That arrives at Bro. Yeah. I think that the tone of Beowulf, I wasn't, this didn't happen to me actually, somewhat ironically, given where we are right now. Um, this happened to me when I read Tolkien's translation of Beowulf. I was reading the language that he uses in that translation, and it so had this certain kind of like formal masculinity that to me is like just another another shade of bro. And and so much of the story is like, oh, let me tell you about what my man did. My man did this. I didn't even know him, but maybe I was kind of there. The way the POV works in the poem is that sometimes, sometimes the narrator acts like he was in the room, and other times he's like, I heard it from my friends, I heard it from my bros, that this happened, this crazy shit. And um, I just like the, I like the, do I like it? I don't like it in the world, but the notion of inflated actions coming from, you know, sort of bro tall tales, which is a big part of what, what Beowulf does in himself in the poem. He himself is like, I did these really heroic badass things, but you didn't see them because they were underwater where I killed nine sea monsters, but you weren't there because you're not hardcore enough. I was under the water. <laughs> and, you know, it all sounds very familiar to me from that particular kind of culture that says, I did this amazing thing. I am the her- most heroic, the most hardcore, the strongest, the best. And, and yet there were no witnesses to this hardcore behavior. So you have to tell the story in a certain way. You have to be like... And, and bro, of course, is also a way of stopping traffic. It's a way of saying, no, don't, I, I'm talking right now, which is also what, like, Seamus Heaney uses so for that purpose. Um, it's a way to say, I have the floor, and, but bro is also a way to say, I have the floor, but I'm friendly to my audience. 
We are all bros together. We're all the same kind of man. We all, we all understand. I can skip over some parts of this story. We know what, we know what it's like to be this man. And so you have that bond with the, with the heroic narrative, which I think is, yeah, that's why I did it. Um, and, you know, once I had that idea, then I had to translate Beowulf is what happened to me. I had an idea for the first word, and then I was broken, which is a long tradition. This has happened to others. And then it's like you've caught the plague. You know, you're like, oh, no, it's, now it's going to be years of my life where I am, like, clawing through rhyme. But, yeah, that's where it came from. Um, the question yeah. comes from sharing your work in progress. To me, I think it's a really exciting translation. It's great to see you putting your stamp on it. I'm also glad that you mentioned uh, Seamus Healy, because um, my question was going to be to what extent have you felt, working on your own translation, that you are uh, living in his shadow, much in the same way that people like George R. R. Martin live in the shadow of, of Tolkien in, in the fantasy tradition. Obviously, Healy's translation does cast a long shadow over. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting because in the U.S. it's coming out from the same publisher. It's, it's also FSG. And they, it's, you know, it's been 20 years. So I, I think his translation is really interesting, particularly reading it in comparison with you know, the, the nine others that I have surrounding me all the time. Because that's what I'm interested in. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm interested in the, the ways that people have wanted to, to look at this narrative contextually, the ways that they have wanted to look at what actually happens in this story. And so his, his shadow is long, a Nobel Prize winning poet, like pretty intense, um, and, a little, and a little scary to look at, so I just don't look at that. I, I look at his words and think, okay, you made that choice. That's an interesting choice. Here's someone else making a different choice. And the choices are a wide spectrum of choices in terms of what people have done as they've worked in this material. And, there, you know, of course, there's no shortage of, shortage of translations. So I feel like there's always room for another view on something like this text. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. Um, FSG assigned him an Anglo-Saxon scholar because they were worried he would get it wrong. And he, he did so much work to get it right he, and still got a lot of critique about the translation itself, I think. Whereas right now, because I wrote Mirwife, they did not assign me any scholars. I'm just like a wild creature rushing through the forest with two torches setting trees on fire. So, but I think, you know, there's room for that translation as well. Like, I have been lucky enough to have a publisher who's like, okay, we're ready for that. Let's do that. Let's, let's see what happens if you, if you come through wildly as a novelist rather than as a poet. Or, you know, I mean, I've, I've certainly been a poet over the years, but I, but I don't consider myself to be... Um, formerly a poet. So to, to play with language in this way is just privilege. It's so so much fun. Yeah. Are we doing I think maybe there's one final question. One more question? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. And I say also, I'm going to go again. I also ask a question. Any questions? Or... No, I think you're good. Okay. Go with um, the bell. When you were talking about when you specifically mentioned the word bro, and, you know, that kind of I found really interesting then that that kind of duper, the same kind of duper voice then uses the word privilege a few times, which now is such a loaded word. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, like, where did you kind of position your narrator in regards to, like, 
how, what does the narrator actually think about the story? Is there like kind of undercurrent critique there or was that kind of, yeah? I mean, that, of course, is the topic of many years of scholarship on all sides of that. Um, in, in terms of what I think, what I'm, what I'm doing in my version, um, you know, I've always been interested in the feeling of, like, the poet slash the, the people who are copying the text, the monks going, eh, you know, I think I'm just going to stick a little thing in here that I remember from elsewhere. So... <coughs> I think there's always, not exactly a critical eye, although sometimes there's like, wrong God, just so you guys know, here I am working on this story, I'm going to pause for a second and say wrong God. Um, and I'm putting that in, I mean, it's part of, the, it's part of the, the text, and it's an interesting part of the text, the idea of like, which is why I think, what I was saying about Bro earlier, the idea of we're all in this together, we all have the same back knowledge, <gasps> is part of the way the story is being told here because it's sort of like, we're all the same kind of guy, we're all the same kind, and here's a little bit of random that I threw in, I braided it together, it's some scholarship from elsewhere, you know, and I'm telling a different weird bit of story. And that's, that's part of what's so interesting about the Beowulf poem, is it's full of scraps and bits and bobs that you can also entwine working on it with the themes of the poem, but sometimes they're not, sometimes they're just like, things that are treated as fragments like they don't make sense. But they do. They're about they're about loss very frequently. They're about they're about war and grief and loss and what you give up in order to have loyalty to your people. And I think that's um, you know, as far as point of view goes, it's a wild compendium of knowledge that's stuffed into this poem. And it's fun to think of somebody trying to like go, okay, okay, let me break it down for you. I know, you don't have this scholarship. I'm just going to grab it. I'm just going to toss some rhyme here, totally different meter. And, and having someone be able to do that because they have put in a kind of all-encompassing voice at the top that says, we all know what this story is, don't we?